In this episode, I interview Dan Rowe, who's the CEO of FranceSmart and the co-managing partner of Kitchen Fund. Dan Rowe specializes in finding the next big thing. And for over 20 years, he has discovered and grown many major brands you may have heard of before, uh, including Five Guys, Qdoba, uh, and the Halal Guys. Under Dan Rowe's direction, FranceSmart's current and past franchise development portfolio brands, you know, they have developed over 5,000 restaurants worldwide. It's pretty incredible. And they've facilitated franchise investments that have accumulated over $1 billion in revenues to date. Dan definitely knows how to find a winning restaurant. And in this episode, we'll explore some of those winning qualities. So let's dive in. Hi, my name is Brett Linkletter, CEO and founder of Misfit Media, the best damn restaurant marketing agency on the planet. Here at Misfit, we help restaurant owners grow and scale their business through strategic online marketing practices. Right now, you're listening to our podcast, Restaurant Misfits, where we'll discuss all things related to restaurant marketing, management, and everything else in between growing a restaurant business. This podcast is also brought to you in collaboration with Total Food Service. For over 30 years, Total Food Service has provided the restaurant and food service industry with exclusive interviews to the latest news on products, trends, associations, and events. You can sign up for a free monthly subscription by visiting TotalFood.com today. And from all the misfits over here, we hope you enjoy the show. Cheers. Hey, Dan, how are you doing? Doing great, thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Dan, you have such an amazing background. You have over 20 years of experience in the restaurant space. Um, How did you first get into this space overall? I was a franchisee. Well, I mean, I used to, I washed dishes at Carville Ice Cream. I, I uh, was a short order cook at one of those beach uh, concession stands down on Huntington Beach. So I've been in the restaurant business, but when I was 23 years old, I bought a franchise. I bought a restaurant franchise and didn't know what I was doing, but this is my first foray. And really the way that that went was <clears throat> I used to sell software and um, fell in love with this. Ba- I went out to DC from Southern California all the time, fell in love with this little bagel bakery shop. I had never seen one out in Southern California where I was from. So I wanted to bring it out there. I wanted to buy the franchise and bring it out there. And I was going to go in on it with a buddy of mine and he and his wife wanted to move to Denver. And so I said, great, we're going to open up a bagel <coughs> shop, Denver, which we did. So we opened up the bagel shop. This chain only had six stores. So little did I know at the time that a six unit franchisor doesn't have a lot of support, doesn't have a lot of service, had no name recognition in Colorado, but we were on our own and we were super successful. And I made a deal with those guys that I said, look, if I help grow this chain outside of Denver and I prove that it's successful, I also want to do your franchising. And they said, fine. So I grew them from six stores to 200 locations <clears throat> and sold. We sold to the people that owned Popeye's and it was a nice little payday uh, at a, at a, still in my twenties. And wow. um, yeah. And then we found our store in Den- um, Denver. One of them was across from the original Chipotle. So Chipotle won. And so we couldn't talk those guys into working with us, but um, Qdoba copied them. You ever heard of Qdoba Mexican? So absolutely. Qdoba copied them and they, they each had one location open. Qdoba or Chipotle was about to open up two more. 
but Qdoba had one. We teamed up with Qdoba, put some money, uh, helped them launch franchising, and grew those guys. And grew, I think we sold the first three or 400 franchises and then sold that, got them up to around, around 100 stores, give or take, and then sold that company to Jack in the Box. And so, wow. Yeah. So at that point, I was, uh, I was two for two and um, thinking I was a lot smarter than I was. So I went out and figured like any brand I touched, I could make it another couple hundred unit chain, went through some rough years of realizing that that wasn't the case. Um, but then got smart. And in 2000, I created Fransmart. And so instead of doing one company at a time, I did more of an incubator, smarter approach to it. And one of our first brands was Five Guys. So back when uh, Five Guys was still mom, dad, five sons, they had four locations. Um, he signed a lease for his fifth, and then he wound up actually assigning that, lo that location to uh, our partnership. So we wound up becoming one of the first franchisees. Brandsmart launched the whole national franchise program for Five Guys. Wow. And, um, and so that, that really became our niche. So our niche was these early stage emerging brands. A lot of people get nervous about that because it's early stage. It's sort of like an IPO or whatever, getting into, you know, getting into tech early. I mean, it's a you know, high mm -hmm. risk, much higher reward when they hit. And that's kind of the space that we found for ourselves. We get into these brands that no one's ever heard of. Usually we get traction in them because their economics are so compelling that it, it sort of makes up for the fact that, that, that they seem risky because they're not as well put together. But, you know, I had a lot of success with, with growing early stage emerging brands by following a couple of uh, tricks and, Got it. Um, and it seems to work. But we've sold over 5,000 franchises around the world. So now... Wow. <clears throat> that is incredible. Oh my God. Um, wow. Thank you for that. That awesome intro, Dan. <laughs> I love it. Um, okay. So obviously, you know, early on you, you had a lot of success. You said just in your twenties, you said you, you got your first franchise at 23, which is fantastic. Amazing. Um, you can say you have a, a couple of tricks. I mean, how do you, how do you spot out, you know, the, the winners from the losers? What, what makes uh, a restaurant appealing to you? I mean, a lot of it is, <clears throat> is, is the unit economics itself. So are the sales high? Do customers like it? Like, like naturally and organically, like there's, if you go to any food court, you go to any strip center, any food hall, and some restaurants are busy, busier than the others. And so we look at a concept that is just busy. So like when we found Five Guys, like Five Guys didn't even use a point of sale system. They didn't have any, they never did inventories. They couldn't really tell you the business side of the business, but they had a line out the door every day. When I got to Qdoba, I mean, they'd only been around for 90 or 120 days when I got there, but there was a line out the door every day. So that's customers voting with their wallet, telling you that they like the concept. I can figure out how to write a manual or to improve food cost, improve labor cost. I can set up national pricing as well as anybody. So I know that, that that's just a way to sort of put more structure in place. But the one thing that we look for is, is are the unit economics there? Like if, if we brought this to a franchisee, franchisee be so compelled to jump in um, early. But I think a lot of it starts, it starts with financial, like they just have to be profitable. And then beyond that, we look at things like, can the management team handle it? If I go grow this thing to hundred units, are they gonna be able to grow with it? Or are they gonna implode? Were they open to bring in outside people, some other people? Um, do they have the capital? Uh, if they don't have the capital, we have capital. So would they, are they, would they make a good you know, investment for us? 
Um, we look at real estate. That's really important too, because you could come up with an amazing uh, burrito concept today, but it's like, you're not going to put one anywhere because there's a Chipotle and a Qdoba and Moe's and two or three other people on all the best sites. You know, I think right now is not the time to come up with another fast casual burger guy because they're just, they're just oversaturated. So we look for, Got we it. look from a real estate perspective, like what do landlords dying for? What have really good unit economics? We have a big batch of franchisees. We have over 100,000 people in a database and we're constantly sampling them for what they're looking for. So a lot of times, whenever we take on a new brand, we already know where our new franchisees are coming from. So have you ever heard of Halal Guys? Absolutely. Yeah, the Halal Guys. So we got involved with those guys when they were street carts. And my premise was just, there's a billion and a half Muslims and there's no brand. So there's nothing, if I go to the average Starbucks and I ask any customer in there to name, you know, Muslim actors or, you know, singers or apparel brand, nothing. Like you have a billion and a half people and there's no brand. And I love Middle Eastern street food. <clears throat> so we just, we just figured that's going to be a big thing. And we looked at economics. We looked, we went out and sampled a bunch of real estate, a bunch of landlords. We're like, what do you think about this concept? If I make the Chipotle of Middle Eastern... And so we got green lights all the way. And then I went to a couple of my internal folks some people that were already in our ecosystem. And I said, we're going to start franchising this. And bang, right off the bat, we had some big franchise groups step up and they opened the, the brand and proved that the concept would work. We opened up in Chicago and in, and in uh, Southern California. And those stores were just as successful as, as, uh, as, as, uh, as New York. So we knew. So there's, there's a lot to it, but you kind of have to know, like no franchisee wants to buy, be the only franchisee of a chain. Like they want to know if they get into a brand that it's going to be the next big thing so that they can build it and then they can even resell it, right? That's how you get rich in the franchise business. Absolutely. Build one or two. But let's, let's, let's go back to, you said, obviously one of the first points you mentioned was you obviously need to be profitable, right? And yeah. I, I think <clears throat> for so many restaurants that we speak to, profitability and, and, and margins they look for. I mean, there's, there's a wide range, but for you guys specifically, I mean, w what is profitable to you guys? And what, what's the margins you guys might be looking for in food costs to everything else? Well, really we go past that and we say, what's the ROI for the franchisee, right? Because at the end of the day, all that matters, but not really. I mean, you can have a low food cost, but a high labor cost and it doesn't really help the ROI. We look at four wall ROI. And so we like the fact that a restaurant concept that costs, you know, $500,000 can generate $200,000 a year of free cash. That's a 40% ROI and that sells. And so that same $500,000 concept that generates 200 grand profit. Now, what if you can go do some conversions and build those things for 400, 300, all of a Got sudden it. you've got a 60, 80% ROI. That's the kind of numbers I think that an emerging brand has to have right now. Like you've got to have got to have 40 or 50 percent four wall profit for people to jump in right now and got it especially with conversions like you know where you live in la is no different than dc i'll be in new york tomorrow new york city tomorrow there's prime home run locations that are just sitting there vacant that someone could go into and build a conversion right take advantage but when you when you when you found someone like the halal guys i mean you said you found them when they were literally like street carts how are how are you you gauging that they're going to be something really profitable like that to get you that 40 or 50% wall, four, wall, four wall profit. I mean, well, we it's so early on. Or Yeah, we engineered the model 
to be, we basically stacked the deck, right? So the first store was a cart. So we knew that we weren't building three or 4,000 foot stores. The first store we built in, uh, in um, uh, Chicago was a thousand feet. You did two million, over $2 million its first year in sales. And so you're, when you're only wow. spending a thousand square feet, you're spending a couple hundred thousand dollars. I mean, a $2 million store makes that back in a few months. And then, you know, Southern California, they're famous. There's pictures of that store that had lines around the block, like down Bristol. And, you know, that was a, an inline, reasonably inexpensive store to build. And it did, you know, I mean, gosh, maybe 10 to one sales to investment ratio, eight to one. And so we know, like, if you, you've got to engineer your stores, you can't be, you don't want to spend any more money than you should spend opening up a restaurant because everything impacts your ROI. And so many times franchisors get that wrong and they build these vanity projects, these, these not, you know, these sort of uh, trophies to themselves on franchisees money and they ruin the economics and franchisees don't want to keep building. Yeah. So it's, it sounds like for you, for you guys, I mean, you're not just finding a great concept that you believe can scale that, that you think you can help, but you're also obviously providing a, a lot of, are you guys helping on kind of the brand side too, the brand, the marketing side, all those other things as well, or talk to us about that. Everything. So we basically start with the end in mind. I looked at Halal guys and I saw that as a thousand unit chain. And I said, you know, company is going to need a couple of corporate stores. So I helped them with that. I said, franchisees are going to be building all these territories. And so I'm going to help the franchisees on everything it takes from real estate to people planning. And then on the franchisor side, it's like, you just never have, you never stop having these conversations about scaling the franchisor and scaling the franchisees. But every, every, like we're advisors, strategists, we've kind of seen it all. We've made every mistake in the world. We've not, I mean, we've got dozens of brands we work with, plus we're also investors in a whole bunch of other brands through, through Kitchen Fund. And you just sort of see these best practices. Somebody's doing something better than everyone else that we mosaic yep. in our best known way. And then we share that with, uh, with, with the brands. And so we're constantly advising our franchisors and our franchisees. And a lot of the things when you sell a franchise, you know, you're, you're, we sell, we, do, we never do mom and pop deals. We always sell territories. And, um, and so in the beginning, you're really talking about a franchisee opening up a new store in a brand new market, which has a lot of supply line and training implications. And then at some point, you have to teach that franchisee how to run a multi-unit business, which is completely different because they're, they now have to build an organization that does everything, right? And they're not thinking yeah. that. Originally, they're thinking like an entrepreneur, I'm hands-on, then they've got to be hands-off in order for the wheel to turn right. And then at some point, the funny thing is, franchisees after four or five years start to get bored. They start to think about doing other things or they start to feel like, gosh, I'm paying all this money to the franchisors. What am I getting for my money? And so that on top of this sense that, you know, you're just not the shiny new toy in the toy box anymore. You start to, these restaurants after four or five years start to atrophy and the relationship starts to atrophy. And so you have to know that that's coming to plan for that. And so, you know, we have a lot of tricks in our book that, basically um, uh, help that. But it's like, you know, we always start with the end in mind and we just know and over, over 10 years, here's how all of these different relationships are going to go. And based on what's happening this year, we already know what's going to transpire next year from that. So we're constantly staying in front of what our franchisors and franchisees are going through. Got it. Got it. 
Wow, that's incredible. I mean, you guys, obviously, you've had so much success over and over and over again. Um, and you mentioned, okay, you always sell ter- territories. You obviously never sell mom and pops. Um, what is, what is, what is, if you're selling a territory, what, what is the numbers you look for in a specific territory? I guess it's kind of dependent, right? I mean, if so, you're looking to sell to someone, what's, what's the number of units that you're looking for? So an ideal franchisor, let's say that they have 500 franchise locations. You yep. really only want them to have 50 franchisees, maybe a hundred franchisees, right? So five or 10 units each is perfect. So okay. we basically start off, we give all of our franchisors these models and we say, look, what happens if we sell one deal a quarter the first year, one, and they're all five units or 10 units. What happens if we sell one every other month? And then the third year, what if we sell one a month? And we start to build this model and we just show, because you think about like, I'm, I've, I've got restaurant experience, I've got some money. Somebody sells me the franchise from LA and I'm out here in DC. Like there's still a lot of handholding because I've never opened that yeah. restaurant before. So there's still a lot of handholding on my first unit. Then my second unit, it's like half the handholding. Then the third unit, half again. So, I mean, you've got this sort of shrinking list of handholding. The royal, the franchise fees and the royalties go up, but the effort per dollar goes down. And so that's where all the profit is. Not the same. And so we show that to franchisors and we sort of say, look, you know, and we're really jumping on our franchisors when we sell a five or 10 unit deal and the franchisees are feeling, not feeling the love after one or two stores. They're not, you know, if they don't want to keep building more stores, it's like, you're ruining your model. Like your ability yeah. to build this business and sell it for a lot of money really is your, is your development schedules and how many, you know, the development schedule integrity and your royalty rates we do the same thing for franchisees. So we give them all, there's this book I read, first book on business, still the best book on business I've ever read called The Richest Man in Babylon. And it talks about this idea of build, a, build something that creates free cash, use that free cash to build more things that make more free cash and on and on and on. And it really in this stage, it, in this stage um, helps you get that snowball effect of compounding returns. And so we give a financial model to our franchisees and sort of say, look, try to delay your gratification for a year or two, build your store, make your profit, reinvest that plus a little less money out of your pocket and reinvest that a little less money out of your pocket in your third store. At some point, you're going to be, you're going to hit that critical mass where you um, can self-fund your growth, right? You can yep. self-fund your growth. And then as a franchisee, you're going to want a bigger runway, right? And so like, and that also helps that issue of franchisees getting bored with you after four or five years. If, if they know that, the, that if a franchisee knows that they're on pace to open one or two or two, you know, they're going to put up the money for two or three stores and those are going to get them to 10 stores. They're going to get that cash flow from 10 stores or they've just got an asset that's just several times bigger than they originally thought of to sell. Like, you know, all the the money I have in the bank has come from selling something. It's not come from, you know, I made or something. And so we really work with our franchisees to say, look, I don't care how much money you have today. Tell me your vision. How can I help you get to this place two or three times bigger than you were originally thinking? Now you've got their attention longer. So they stay more engaged with you longer. So we give the models to the franchisors. We give the models to the franchisees. Interesting. Yeah, frankly, that helps a lot. And then it builds this interdependency between the franchisee and the franchisor. Like they both need each other and they tend to fight a lot less knowing that like the franchisor need each other to get there. 
that was my next question is, is how do you, how do you build this trust between the franchisee and franchisor? I mean, that, that isn't that, no, that's, that's great. I mean, that's, that's brilliant. You, you, obviously they, they do need each other. Obviously that's, that's the goal. They're supposed to be work together. That's my next question is how, how do you build that trust? Because I mean, I'll tell you right now, as an ad agency serving restaurants, right? One of the biggest pain points that we deal with is, is just the conflicts between the franchisees and franchisors. The, the back and forth, the, the fighting over, well, they won't let me do this kind of marketing. They don't let me do this with, with my menu. They don't let me do this X, Y, and Z. And there's this constant battle, I feel like. But yeah. it seems like for you guys, I mean, having the end in mind, recognizing they need each other to get to this point, I mean, that's incredible what you guys have done. Yeah, um, it's, it, it, it helps because it really helps because the, the, we've had those issues that you were mentioning. Those are really small things. Those are, in the big scheme of things, they're small things, but they're huge. And so there are people spending so much of their energy and really yep. losing brain cells over something that's small. And it's a symptom of a bigger problem is that that relationship, those guys are not synced. They're not synced. They're not balanced. They're not both trying to get to the same place. They're not trying to help each other. I mean, in franchising, you only get rich helping other people get rich. The franchisors have to realize if you're not helping your franchisees get wealthy, you're never going to get there. You're basically going to be in quicksand. Yeah. In the same way with franchisees, the franchisees have to understand too. It's like, hey, this is not my company. I don't make all the rules. I bought into the system. I'm not always going to like everything every year, but as long as me and the franchisor are on the same page about getting there, I mean, cause you know, you got franchisees and we've had them too, who say, you know, the franchisor sucks. I want to do it, do it this way. We've let them and they were wrong. Right. And this is like, they make 100%. they're not always right. And so but a lot of it comes, a lot of it comes from the very beginning of the relationship. You have more hard more heartfelt conversations with your franchisee. You say, I don't think you have the right people. I don't think that, you know, here's the strategy. If like, what's your outcome? I want to build it. I've only got the money for three or five, but I want to build 20 or 30. Think about how valuable a 20 or 30 unit franchisee is for the franchisor. And what that says to the rest of the world, like the buyers, the investment bankers that are going to come buy that guy's concept, if they're able to get 20 or 30 unit franchisees, that thing's going to Every franchisor should want these big franchisees. And so you have conversations more like your friends, more like your partners, not, not yeah. really a necessary evil. And I see that there's a lot of franchisors that get into franchising. <clears throat> the minute that they sell the franchise, they forget about the fran- upfront franchise fee. Like, you know, they got that money last quarter. They spent it literally the hour they got it. And a year later, when they need to do the work for the franchisee, they don't still have that money sitting in account. So every time that franchisee needs something, they look like they're a pain in the ass. That's not the way to look at it at all. You have to look at the long-term value of a franchisee, which, you know, if you get a franchisee, if a typical store does a million dollars, they're paying you like eight or 10% between royalties, marketing, supply line profit, you know, and then over, you know, you're talking about 80,000 bucks a year. If it's a five unit deal, he's paying you $400,000 a year over 10 years. It's $4 million a year. It's like, stop looking at that guy like he's a necessary evil. Look at that guy is a hundred of those guys helps you sell your company for a hundred million dollars. And for a franchisor, franchisees prepay you to come in. They pay you every week to stay. They follow all of your whims and all of your, you know, larks and not all of them are right. 
They help grow the asset value of your company and they basically get none of that upside. And so franchisors, you know, or I think need to get their head on straight. But I, but I do think that there, it goes both ways. You need to have a lot more, need to be part of your franchisee's success. You have to care that they get wealthy. They have to know that you care about them getting wealthy and you have to have those conversations. I love that. I love that. There's uh, another book I was reading lately. It's called The Diamond Cutter. It's, it's really interesting. It's, um, it's actually like a book on business and life by the Buddha, which is really interesting. <laughs> and uh, one thing in the book they mention is just, hey, if, if you're low on cash or, or you're having issues money-wise, um, try to be more generous. Try to be more, more giving. Try to make everyone rich around you, and therefore you'll become rich too. Yeah. Like you mentioned yourself, right? Uh, you know, um, what do you say? You, you said franchisees, you, you know, you only get rich by helping other people get rich. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's you, you, you need to have that abundant mindset. So I think you're totally yeah. right. Creating this conflict between the two is, is just stupid and, and it's not helping anyone at the end of the day. Well, it um, goes with like your staff. Like if you don't, you know, if you see a franchisor getting wealthy and then all of your staff that are helping you get there are basically being marginalized, you're going to have turnover. Yeah. And it's like in the big scheme of things, why not pay, pay people a little bit more? Why not give them a little bit of the upside, a little bit of the, there's going to be a liquidity event. I mean, so what if you get two thirds of a much bigger number than you were going to get on your own? You know, you've got a whole bunch of people plus karma. It's, you know, and anyways, I feel that way, but like we have a bunch of people in France who have been here over 10 years. It's just like, you know, we, Amazing. we pay people well, we treat them well, we pr- let them participate in the upside. It's like, who cares? You know, make, let's all make as much as we can. Let's all do really, really great work together and, you know, and then get the upside. But same way with franchisees and franchisors. It's like, I just don't understand, but it happens all the time where they get so distracted with little teeny things and they forget the big picture bowl, you know? hundred um, percent. Dan, you mentioned, so about, you mentioned marketing and, and franchise fees and these things. When it comes to marketing for you guys, how, how do you guys typically budget? I mean, what percent of revenue typically goes to marketing budget and what do you guys typically do? So a franchisee typically spends fifteen or 20000 upfront on a grand opening marketing. And then they spend 2% to a creative fund, right? That goes to the mothership. And then they spend 1% on local store marketing. And then any vendor rebates or kickbacks, which there's always a ton of those, um, those, those generally go into the uh, creative fund, the worldwide fund. Got it. Got it. So one more time, you said 15, 20,000 that's upfront on marketing. Yep. That's the start. And what, what typically goes for that? Is that, I mean, that's the launch, obviously. Do you guys have a typical launch strategy that you guys pursue? Or how does that look? Yeah, you want to, it's basically your grand opening. So it's the couple of weeks before you open to the couple of weeks after you open. It's to generate trial, right? So in the restaurant business, there's only three ways to generate revenue, which is brand new trial, repeat or frequency, or driving your check average. That's it. There's no other yep. ways to make money. And so all of your marketing in the beginning needs to generate trial, brand new people coming to try your concept. That's then your second two things, building your check average all comes from training, right? So like when I was at Five Guys, it's like we would just, you know, I, I would sit there and watch, and this is early on, but I'd watch how many people ordered a burger and then weren't asked about fries or Coke, right? And you assume people want burgers, fries, and Coke, or any brand, I mean, I could take it to a sandwich example or any other example, but it's basically suggestive selling, menu engineering, like there's so much strategy in menu engineering. But at, and then, they, then the last part is the, um, the repeat and the frequency. It's like, you know, they, how do people want to come back? Do they need a coupon or a Groupon? Remember those? 
to, to come yeah. to the restaurant or do they, did they go and they like it and they want to come back? Well, those two are operational things. So the first thing is trial. So usually the first 30 days, it's all about generating trial, but the four walls marketing, the, the marketing that's probably the most important is, okay, I spent all this money and all this creativity with, with influencers and social media and PR and all these other levers that we pulled to get people to come try. How was their experience? And so yep. more energy needs to be put on making sure that the experience is right. So people want to go out. And then, and then the ongoing 2% and then the 1% local, it's usually, it's usually continues to do trial or limited time offers or those kind of things. But then people so many times forget about suggestive selling or things that really just getting the operations right. I mean, think about an In-N-Out burger. Right. And it's like, yeah, Starbucks. it's like, well, there's a lot yeah. of the coffee concepts. Why do people keep going to Starbucks? There's a lot of the burger places, but there's just something about in and out burger that just sort of does it a little bit better than everybody else, you know? So but those Absolutely. are, those are it, but I'm sure you've got all the tricks in the books for marketing too, driving uh, people. hundred percent. No, but I, I like how you mentioned, you know, upfront uh, the trial marketing, right? Because I think, uh, you know, for us, for example, right our policy is whenever you're reaching someone for the first time, whenever you're, you're it's the most expensive to acquire a brand new customer, obviously, right? If yeah. we're trying to get someone to come in the door that's never been there before, how do we get them to, to stop, take action, come in store, give your restaurant a shot? And oftentimes giving away something for free, some kind of promotional offer is an easy way to do it, right? Um, a lot of people though, you know, have some kinds of issues giving away free items or promotional items or whatever the case to brand new customers. What, what would you tell them? I mean, what, what's your kind of mindset on that? We don't. So we don't typically like to give away free food. We don't like discounts. And so we don't, we don't, I mean, sometimes you have to do them, especially where you've had a restaurant that's yep. been in the market and not run well, and you need to do some things to bribe people to come back in. But the truth is that these brands should have enough cool things about them to market that you don't need to market it on a discount. Like if you've only got customers coming to you because you've got a discount, I don't think that you have a model that's ever going to sell. So it's got to be something that people want, you know, want to have. So for us, we, we put a lot of effort into awards and accolades, and really sort of getting other people talking about us. And then that stuff that we market. Right. So got it. You know, yeah. But when you, when you mentioned trial, what, what's up goes into the trial stuff? I mean, especially as someone who's early on before you have any accolades, right. Maybe you're starting out, maybe it's your first couple of locations, um, so I can tell you, so it was a, a lot of, like a lot of PR. So like at Halal yep. Guys, we'd open up in a new market. All we talked about was these long lines at the carts. And then as soon as we opened Costa Mesa, we talked about the long lines at the carts and the store that was in uh, Chicago. And then every time a store would open, we would just keep talking about these ridiculously long lines and like, what is going on? And all we did was marketed the lines and the people lining up. And the the, the nuance of that line was that, very few of the people in line were Muslim. A lot of those customers were just across the board, right? It's basically the same yep. people that go to Starbucks or Panera or anyone else. It's right in these lines. And it was really sort of like between our awards, our accolades, these long lines, you basically just want to show people, like we never had a discount to get customers. You just show people, oh my God, this thing that's really happening just opened, go check it out. Look what, look what yep. other people are saying. If you notice at Five Guys, like their entire marketing decor at a Five Guys is an is awards or all the awards that they've won, best burger, best fries, hundred percent. They don't advertise. They don't. They don't. They do very little advertising and no couponing at all, and it's all getting full fare paying customers 
into your store. The idea that you're going to spend marketing money to discount a customer who's only coming because you bribed them to come, you're not really, like you just said, the most um, uh, expensive customers the first time, but the most profitable is a repeat customer. So absolutely, if you're really fishing in that pond where you're only getting people that you have to spend a bunch of money to bribe with a discount to come in, they're probably not going to convert anyways. And so anyways, yeah, we, yeah, we want foodies. We want people that care about it, like a better experience. That's, that's typically our kind of brands. Um, yeah. But any, oh, even I, if I, I had like, I'm looking for QSR concepts right now. I'm, I'm actually, I think fast casual pond is overfished. So we're looking in other uh, markets. Interesting. And I'm looking at value, lower cost concepts, but um, there's still, I mean, without having, they're already inexpensive. Right. They're already yeah. low cost. Like, well, no, I, cause I, I hear what you're saying and I hear this all the time, obviously, but you know, I, we, I mean, we have numbers to show that hundred percent, if you get someone the very first time to come through, let's just say it costs you $3 in food costs and, and $5 in acquisition. And that's $8 customer acquisition costs, call it yeah. whatever easy example. And that customer ends up spending 20 bucks. Well, you're looking at, you know, let's say a $12 profit margin, right? Minus food costs. Right. Well, now, if you have that person's contact information because they came in or whatever the case and redeemed some kind of offer and you have the ability to remarket to them and you can track them coming back month after month after month, the, the profitability on that customer you spent in the beginning was $8, right, for this example. But the lifetime value of that customer now, month after month after month over the course of the first year could be, could be hundreds of dollars potentially, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's what I we're looking at. Yeah, as long as you're targeting the kind of customers that are likely to be repeat customers, then yeah. then yeah, I think then that's fine. But you know, you're not going to get it. Like you guys are really creative. You're really good at marketing. If you do a promotion for one of your clients and you drive a bunch of brand new trial, cause something that you guys came up with that resonates with people, you drive all this new trial into a restaurant and they have a crappy experience. It's like, they're not coming back. Right. hundred so, percent. And, that, and that's not your fault. That's the, that's the, that's the operator's fault by not making sure every 100%. single customer has to get it a hundred percent right hundred percent of the times, like no excuses. And they have to have that high of a bar. hundred percent is the only number to shoot for. You know, if you shoot for a hundred and you come up short, you're still in the nineties, which remember from school, that's still an A. But if you get these franchisors that aren't really thinking about what their target is anyways, but it's gotta be a hundred percent perfect guest experience every single time. And then, and then you do some things to generate new trial you're going to have a big conversion rate. And then you're right. The long-term value, the lifetime value of that customer makes sense for eight bucks. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, and and the big thing too, you mentioned Groupon. I mean, Groupon, I thought was, I think in the beginning, everyone loved it, but then quickly everyone started beginning not to like it so much. And I think the reason for that, right, is is you see these customers that they're, they're, they're seeking out this deal. They're going to Groupon specifically looking for what, what can I take advantage of? What, what's available to me right now? Right. They're going to it. Right. But for instance, you and me, we're, we're off people. We we don't need to get a deal, but Hey, if all of a sudden I saw something come across through social media, whatever the case, and I was, I don't know, never been to the restaurant, looked intriguing. We might want to take advantage of it. We'd be curious potentially. Right. And I think that's what you mentioned, right? It's about the targeting is, is how can we reach the exact right kind of customer that will continue coming back? Because I think that's what people get it wrong so many times is that they, they do some kind of deal and they give it to the same people over and over and over again. And you create these habits of these deals, right? Where, you know, majority of the time it comes down to the targeting, like you mentioned, Hey, how can we reach the right person at the right time and the right moment to get them in the door? And then that's that. Yeah. And then, hey, let the restaurant do the rest. Right. Yeah. 
that's yeah, what we're looking for. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, there's so much to marketing, but um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, you know, I think about five guys. It's like, they don't advertise, but every time I want a burger, I'm, that's where I go. Like I, that's, I mean, I'll, I'll walk past two other places or drive past two other places. Yeah. get something at five guys. And it's just like, I just, I just know it's going to work. You know, I just know that the brand's going to work. Usually I find that the people that get into two, now, now doing coupons to gin the beginning in the, for a grand opening. I don't, I don't think that that's, I don't think that's necessarily a bad idea to do that in the very beginning with the grand opening, but to have to do that for a restaurant that's two, five years old, 10 years old, if you're really needing to use that, there's other problems at that restaurant that need to get fixed. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I mean, I, I like you mentioned about the, the, the PR stuff. I love that you mentioned it. You, you're, you're marketing, you're, you're, you're writing these articles about the lines. There's these lines with these lines, these lines. That's, that's really great. I mean, that's incredible. Um, okay. And so obviously this year through COVID, uh, you know, a lot of people have a lot of bad things to say about the situation, right? A lot of people have, have lost their businesses. There's been um, a lot of terrible things because of this, obviously. But I think, you know, for your business, for what you guys are doing, and, and obviously for most restaurateurs who are looking to expand, this is kind of a, a good opportunity, right? <laughs> I mean, it's a great opportunity. Um, talk to us about that. What, what are opportunities that you see now because of COVID? I mean, look, I'm not tone deaf. And I know, I know COVID is, COVID sucks. It's bad for everybody. Yeah. That aside, on the business side or the economy or the restaurant business, everything goes in cycles, right? We were ready for another cycle. Think about what people were bitching about last year. They couldn't find good people. They couldn't afford people. They couldn't find good locations. They couldn't afford good locations. There seemed to be too many restaurants, right? There just was so many options. Every time you went to go look for a site, five other people were looking at the space, driving up the cost, all these things, right? So last year, we were at this sort of bubble anyways. And so, and I've been here, I've been doing this again for 30 years. So, so uh, do you remember Planet Hollywood? Remember Boston yep. Market? Like all, you know, these cycles, those were once Absolutely. things that go through cycles. This is just the COVID just made the cycle spin again and, and, and happen. But what you've really got right now, the gift I think that's going to come out of all this is you've still got, I don't know how many people are in America, 300 million people. There's, you've still got 300 million people. They're all waking up hungry tomorrow. They're going to eat somewhere. And you, now you've got a third less people feeding them because of all these restaurant closures. You're probably going to get another 10 or 15% closures. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, you've got this supply and demand shift in, in your favor, in the operator's favor, for really, really good locations that are dirt cheap, really good conversions which make it, I mean, the, the real estate itself, you can get access to great real estate. The terms have never, have, haven't been this good in over a decade. The amount of tenant improvement money, the amount of incentives we're getting, the amount of free rent that we're seeing is, is I haven't seen this. I haven't seen this in a long, long, long time. Conversions. Wait, you, said, you, said, you said free rent. Free rent. Free rent. Yeah. Free rent. I mean, free rent. We told a landlord we're like, like $200,000 <laughs> in tenant improvement of money. In 2021, we're only paying you CAMs. And then 2022 on, we're only paying this percent of rent that includes cams and the landlord took it. And it's like, wow. Took it. And it's like, you couldn't make that deal a year ago. You probably can't make it next year. You better make these deals right now. So like, any, like it's like anything, right? The stock market goes down. Some people panic and freak out and sell into a down market while the smart ones are buying because they know 
over time, the, the market goes up. You just sort of, it goes up and you just have to be, you just have to have the guts to do that. But the supply and demand shift I'm talking about. So you got the supply and demand shift for really good locations, really good terms, really good conversions, access to more and better employees than you've had the unemployment rate that we've got right now is we haven't seen this in our lifetime. Right. And yeah. so it's, 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 it's an opportunity. And then, and then you've got this customer supply and demand imbalance where you've got all these people with just fewer places to go eat. It's sort of like you go to a Dodger game and during the intermission, everybody's rushing for the few hot dog and beer stands and there's a huge line. That, I, I think next year, I think you're going to see this crazy spring fever bounce back. Like, like people are just so tired of being pent up and they're tired of being afraid. And customers want to feel smart. They want to feel safe. That's going to start happening with the vaccine. And when the news starts to, to report about that, I think you're going to get, see a surge of customers going back out to restaurants. And there's only going to be about two thirds of the options out there. All of those guys' sales will be up. They're all, they're all going to seem high. And so yep. all of a sudden the restaurant business is going to seem hot again. And so to me, like, like if I sold you today a, a Halal Guys franchise today, let's just say, you're not going to yep. open for a year, right? So by the time you get a site, do your drawings, get your permits, build your team, maybe nine months. And so if you believe, like I believe that the world, I think that the economy will be really good. I mean, we, we, like right now, our, our restaurant sales that are fast casual, all of them are up. And we don't have one chain that has down sales because of COVID, because we're very on the front end of off-premise and delivery. and Incredible. And, yeah. And so if, so if you believe that, that this time next year is going to be better right now is the time to plant those seeds. If you wait until next year, like, wow, I'm going to take a, let me see, let me see, let me see. You're basically going to lose all that option, all that kind of upswing yeah. and all that up momentum. So that's what I think. It's, it's like some people are believe it, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. Other people are, I'll see it when I believe it. And this is a case where you have to believe next year is going to, this time next year is going to be strong and you better plant your seeds now, or you're going to just watch other people do it and get wealthy in the process. Got it. Got it. I love that. I love that. And, I, and I'm glad you mentioned this because again, there's been a lot of negative news and I think some people need some positivity because Hey, when there is a crisis, there is opportunity straight up. I mean, that's just how it works. Right. I mean, I'll tell you, which was in really insane for us. And you know, when COVID first hit and I, uh, and end of March, April, we lost half our clientele. I mean, it was it was brutal. We had, uh, you know, li literally half of our restaurants just gone. And I'd say, you know, half of those half are, aren't coming back at all. You know, it's really unfortunate. It's sad. I mean, we we've seen it, and it's it's awful. But again, like you mentioned, there's this now imbalance. People still need to eat. People seem to go out. Uh, there's less restaurants available now, and so the restaurants that are still in business. There's opportunity, of course. Um, so you mentioned, you know, your, your guys' restaurant sales are, are um, uh, you're, you're still up. You're still, you're still doing well, right? Yeah. Which, is, which, yeah. is, which is great. Um, you've shifted towards online ordering, delivery. Uh, that's something that obviously we've had to do as an agency as well. I, I never personally pushed online ordering at all until COVID hit, right? Yeah. <laughs> which was insane. But now looking into it, it's become a huge part of our service offering. For you guys, um, and you're looking at, let's say, this next year or so in the restaurant space, um, is, is online ordering going to become bigger and better and stronger and, and, and it can it continue moving forward? What are your thoughts on that and how big of a part of the business is going to be for you guys? 
Oh, it's, it's, it's just starting. It's the new normal. But the truth is success leaves clues. And so if you look at Domino's, whose stock just went wild the last decade, it went yep. wild because of all the energy that they put into building their um, delivery platform, basically trying to be the Google, of, uh, the, um, sorry, the um, uh, Uber of pizza delivery. Or you look at um, uh, Sweetgreen, right? Sweetgreen, Sweetgreen's last round of capital was like a billion seven. They've only got 130 restaurants. And so that's a ridiculous amount of valuation per restaurant. And it's like, it's okay, what are they doing different than everyone else? It's their, it's their focus and their investment in digital and off-premise yep. and letting people feel smart and safe using the brand and, you know, whether in basically making, uh, making sweet green pervasive. So do you want to eat it there? Do you want to get it? Do you want to walk in and get it to go? Do you want me to drop it off at these drop-off nodes? Do you want me to deliver it to you? How do you want it? That's exactly. So you look at some of these guys and it's like, well, that, they, they tell you what to do. Like you just go follow the most successful people and they're already telling you where the business is going and how their numbers are. I mean, Sweetgreen sales are, you know, two times, three times an average five guys. And, you know, wow. have, you know, yeah. And so it's like, you know, they're ridiculous numbers. And so it's like, okay, well, that's customers Huge. voting with their wallet to go there. And so if you see that, and if you know that it's like, well, you can get a lot of clues watching, uh, watching that, but you know, there's a lot of ways through it. You see, I mean, the world, you see this, this week, Jimmy John's announced that like, they're now starting to use, they, they swore forever. We're not going to use the third party guys, screw the third party guys. Now they're at least using the third party guys to capture leads, capture customers, but they're going to do their own delivery. So those kind of things will change and ebb and flow in a little bit. But the truth is you need to meet customers where they want to be met how they want to be met. You better feed them where they want, when they want, how they want, or else somebody else is going to. And off-premise is easy. And so you just have to engineer your model to make it work. Some people cry and complain about the third-party delivery costs. It's like, just, you got to work with it. And I think, you know, I've, I've, I don't really believe, I think that there's going to be a big fallout in all these ghost kitchen, dark kitchen things. I think oh, really? some, people, some people make a bundle. But the majority of the people, I think, are going to falter. I think where there's a real opportunity for change is to do sort of a clicks and bricks, right? So to go basically do more of it on their own. Like that, I don't, these ghost kitchens don't want brands because they, you know, sort of like the, these ghost kitchens remind me of these airport companies or the concessionaires at colleges or, or whatever. They, they own these pipes into like the airport or the college and part of them getting the pipe is they're saying, well, I've got five guys and I've got Starbucks, right? But they don't yeah. want to pay those fees. And so the way that they offset it is they come up with their own Chinese or their own something, a pizza. And, and that tries to normalize the fees that they're paying Starbucks or five guys. The same's happening with these ghost kitchens is that these ghost kitchens are approaching us and they're saying, look, I need this brand. I need this brand, but we're also doing a whole bunch of our own brands. What that tells you is that they're really trying to do their own brands. Otherwise they would be a hundred percent branded, but they're not, they're trying to do their own brands. They're going to use you as long as they need to, to build their own um, ecosystem. Right. And all mm. these other problems I have with that, like, like you use a ghost kitchen, you don't own the customer data. I mean, that's, that's just terrible. Like if, you know, if you use a ghost kitchen, you know, if I'm a restaurant and I outsource all my delivery or whatever to a ghost kitchen, it's like, there went all that customer data. There goes my chance of ever actually building that, you know, on my own. So they don't, they I don't think, let you capture that data. 
No, 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 it's a big problem. And so, you know, but I think what will happen is it's sort of like any other idea. Like it's a good, the ghost kitchen was a good idea for a few people, but it's sort of like any other idea where someone spends a dollar to make 10 bucks. Soon it's followed by all these people spending $10 to make a dollar. Right. And so I think that, I think just like the food, remember food halls, food halls were sort of this novel, neat idea that are starting to close down like crazy member strips, you know, the power centers or whatever, lifestyle centers. There's a lot of good ideas that are good ideas, but then they just too many people get So you're, you're saying the, the ghost kitchen concepts you think are going to completely fizzle out? Nope, 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 nope. I think some of them are going to make a ton of money. I think the majority of them will fizzle out. Got it. And then I, Interesting. And I think some of them will make a lot of money. The smart restaurant concepts aren't going to use the ghost kitchens. They're going to do their own click and bricks. Got it. Got it. Yeah, keep all that but it, but it, but it sounds like you're not you're not opposed to third party apps, which most restaurants we speak to absolutely hate them, right? But it's one of those things where they they say they hate them, yet everyone's on it. So there's there's something there, <laughs> obviously. I, well, see, I, I like the third party apps. You have to engineer your model so that you can make money with it, because there's no yeah. reason doing it to lose money. But I like it as long as you're also converting those to your own customers. And there's other ways to do that too, even if it's, even if- And how, how, do you, how do you guys do that, by the way? You can stick a menu in a, like I get these all the time. Whenever I get an, an ad for a drop off from Uber Eats, whoever the food comes in an Uber, you know, from the Uber Eats guy, but then yep. there's something that says save 10% next time by ordering direct off of our website, right? So like exactly. people are basically doing that. And so- there's all those kind of tricks that you can do. But I mean, I like the idea of a ghost kitchen or a third party. If I have a brand new brand and a brand new market, I'm trying to build awareness. And then yep. that's actually serving sort of a marketing function. It's selling totally. my food too. It's selling my food too. I just don't, I don't like the idea that you would do anything and lose money at it. Got it. Got it. But yeah, so, but, so you like it as, as a way of, of reaching people, maybe a, a marketing resource. But hey, the moment you can get someone to order direct, that's obviously what you want. That's the goal. Uh, yeah. 100% and, I, and, and I know this because I've seen them. I see brands that yeah. aren't succeeding on their own. So what they do is they say, I'm going to, I'm just going to start working with ghost kitchens. I'm going to work with ghost kitchens. Like, you know, you may as well just light your money on fire. And so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Damn. That's interesting. I, I mean, I know it's, it's, I'm, I'm excited to hear that because to be honest with you, like I I've seen all the type about it for us in general, we've worked with a few ghost kitchens here and there. Uh, it's not, exactly my favorite to be honest uh but i've never heard this perspective so this is this is interesting yeah for a sure lot, i mean a lot of them it's funny because we would get hit on by these sales guys at ghost kitchens that like six months later they're at another ghost kitchen six months later they're another ghost kitchen yeah and then the next time you hear from them they're selling insurance or they're doing something else it's like this musical chairs that's so and, funny and we're in them so like we, we are customers i mean i speak from experience we are customers in these ghost kitchens and it's like it's not as advertised. It's just not what do, as what do, you, what do you think about restaurants making their own, their own apps? Obviously, okay, you look at someone like Sweetgreen, right? And, and they're crushing it. And they're, they're the epitome of, of someone who's really made it work. I mean, I would really consider them more, more so a tech company than, than a restaurant company. They're, they're obviously both, but it's incredible what they've done. Just, just like Domino's you mentioned earlier, right? Um, yeah. Now, for a restaurant, let's just say like under 10 locations, do you still recommend them building out their own app? Or, or what are some online ordering solutions that you'd recommend for them? So it depends. If their plan is to only be 10 units, probably not. I would probably just use something. If your yeah. plan, I mean, the only reason I would ever get in this franchise business or get in the restaurant business is to build something to sell, right? I would yeah. only build, 
I would get in it with the idea, because I love feeding people. I like the charge I get from feeding someone. I give someone food, they yep. pay me, and then they say thank you. Like immediate gratification. I love everything about that. But I'm still a business guy. And so I still like the idea that, that you're going to get into the restaurant business and you're going to start growing and building something and compounding your returns and growing quicker, franchising, whatever, the whole thing, and then sell the company. If your plan is to do that, then yeah, you need you need to take technology serious. You need to yeah. have something. I don't know that you need to own it and actually be in the game of coding and own own code and all that other nonsense. Like, I'm not sure you need that, but um, but I think that you have to take it serious. If you're just a sort of 10-unit guy and you're happy being a 10-unit guy or if you're a single-unit guy and happy doing that, I, I probably wouldn't spend a ton of energy on that. I just I would just use the third-party guys and then just engineer your brand so that – Yeah. Can you, I would I just, I'd engineer the brand so that, it, uh, so that it could handle those fees. I just I, – I found it funny because I, was, I, was, uh, I spoke at a conference last year in Texas and then there was another conference – nearby that I went to met a client at which was called future restaurants and uh went there met with some really big brands saw some really great speakers and uh I was in a room and the the topic was apps building an app for your restaurant and uh I think there was someone from Domino's that was there which obviously their app's been great for them uh I think there was someone from Qdoba as well that was there uh and a few other big brands and um you know, a, a lot of these other brands are you're talking about how proud they were of the apps they made and this and that. And I asked a simple question, hey, what percent of your revenue is coming directly through your app? And then all the speakers laughed and nobody yeah. understood why they laughed. And it was less than 1%. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in and that so, case, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, it doesn't you make know, sense. And, and so you, you spend half a million dollars on developing this app. And like you said, they're not coders. It's not their space. They're not developers. I mean... I'll tell you right now, for our agency, we're developing an online ordering solution, which will be hopefully launching in the next probably 45 days or so. I'm really excited about. But I'll tell you this even for me, right? I, I'm a tech guy. I'm in the marketing sales side of this technology and online digital marketing space. But hey, <laughs> coding, programming, development, oh my God, this stuff is very difficult. Yeah. Um, you know, even for someone like me who's who's been in this space for for many years now, but it's 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 just it seems like there was there was such a hype around building your own app for for so long, uh, and it's there still is. But in my opinion, it only makes sense for these these massive brands like you're talking about the, like the sweet greens of the world. But you're, you're looking at these restaurants, five to ten locations, maybe even under that, trying to develop an app. And I'm like, what are you doing? I, I mean, it's just the time, well, the attention, the money involved. Yeah, you have to see who in the company is making all the noise about the apps. Is yeah. it is it really the CFO? If, if the C, you know, chances are the CFO yeah. is not making a lot of noise because they've already done that analysis to know, am I going to spend a dollar to make $10 or $10 to make $1? Yes. I, you know, it's like anything else. If you're like, it sounds like you guys are going to be seriously in that business. So you have to plan differently than a 10 unit guy that's trying to get incremental customers and, you know, a 10 unit guy trying to get incremental customers. He, when you really look at what he should be spending to build that, it, it, the, the answer is I need to use third party. And, and you know, absolutely third party. You can always go back and build your technology. You can always go back and do that. But what you want, you don't want to build it and they'll come, you know, that Field of Dreams movie. Like you want to, you know, one way yeah. is you try it with third parties just to make sure it works. You sort of do the stress test that way and make sure that it works, that you work. You can always go back and get rid of those and build your own. But if you go front load all this capital to build something, I mean, now you're in the technology business. Now you're in the marketing business. Like you're in a 
bunch of different businesses when you started off just to make sandwiches or just to make pizza. hundred percent. So, you know, you don't know. hundred percent. Wow. Uh, well, Dan, it's been really incredible today. I mean, if, if most of our listeners, um, you know, there, there may be a, a couple unit restaurant locations and, uh, you know, they're, they're maybe looking for expansion. If anyone listening to this podcast now was, was just kind of curious, I'm sure they're all thinking like, Hey, what do I do? What, what do I do as a restaurateur? That's maybe three to five locations and, and looking to rapidly expand. What would you say is the kind of the first step for them as of right now? Every single chain of anything started with one, right? So anyone, somebody, I mean, five guys had one, law guys had carts so, yep. you know, Sweet Green had one. It's like if anyone with three or five, if they've really got something good and, you know, they, they should, I think that they should go for it. But a lot of it depends on what they want. If, I mean, I, I meet people all the time that have amazing concepts that just like, you know what, I don't want that. I don't want that, the extra work. I don't want to, you know, I just want to do my thing. And, you know, yep. I've got a guy here in DC that's got an amazing 10 unit concept because, I'm making more money than I ever thought I'd make. I don't really need the hassle. I'll probably double the company in the next five years and sell it. And I'm like, man, I'll put up the money. I'll help you co-manage. He goes, mm, you know, so, so that's yeah. probably the first thing is if someone's got a really good concept, it's like, what do you want to do with it? What's your game plan? Do you really want to do it? Like, are you willing to sort of like jump in with both feet and going back to this, if you're going to grow, whether you're going to, whether you're going to franchise, you're going to grow with investor money or grow with your own. It's, it's, it's all about generating a return, right? You've got to have yeah. a business that generates a great return and it's got, but if they want to do that, I mean, I'm happy to talk to any of them. So just Dan, Dan at France smart is how you get a hold of me. So if you need, amazing, you need me, I'm happy to talk to you, but um, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's never been a time like this. Like this is a, this is a very unique time right now. Uh, to be planting flags. If someone has something that people really like, there's a big opportunity right now. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Um, and then just one more quick question. So when you guys are, are seeking potential uh, territories to seek for, how do you, how do you go, go about finding your leads? How do we what? How do you go about finding your leads for potentially fran new franchisees? Oh, um, most of them are already in our database. We have a database of over 100,000 people that are either already franchisees of other concepts or at some point they responded to some of our marketing material along the way and that kind of goes into our big database. Beyond that, we do a ton of PR. We, we get a ton. I mean, we, we really focus on making our franchisees successful. If that happens, lead flow comes in like crazy. And so yep. we don't really run ads. You know, we don't run ads. Really? We use, yeah, for, for, for franchising. We do, we get PR and buzz about our businesses. Um, we use brokers. Like we use all the, all the name, every franchise broker in the industry we pretty much use. But Perfect. really the best, the best leads come from our database. There are already people that own five of this or 10 of that. And they're looking for non-competitive expansion vehicles. And, you know, like I said, with Halal guys, it's like, we, we had the first six or seven franchisees signed up before the press release even went out. Got it. That's incredible. Wow, Dan. Well, hey, this has been really, really incredible. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, again, for anyone who wants to reach out to you, is, is it Dan at Fransmart.com you mentioned? Yeah. Dan right? Fransmart.com. Awesome. Awesome. Anytime, man. Um, well, cool. So, well, guys, what we'll do on this podcast is we'll put your links below for your website. Um, obviously, if you guys are interested in learning more about what Dan does, shoot me an email at dan at francemart.com. Uh, dan, again, thank you so much for your time, and uh, we'll be seeing you around. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thanks.